Hey there, it's Carolyn. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you about a brand new challenge that we have starting over in the Homestead Kitchen membership really soon. This one is all about making your very own herbal oils and culinary oils and cosmetic oils and turning them into salves and balms for your herbal medicine cabinet. If you're interested in joining me for the Herbal Oils and Salves Challenge, then go to homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Again, that's homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Hey you guys, this is Josh and Carolyn, Homesteading Family, and welcome to this week's episode of the Pantry Chat Food for Thought. This week, we are going to be talking about canning. We'll be doing an introduction to canning. This week's episode of the Pantry Chat is brought to you by BCS Two Wheel Tractors. Now, you may have already heard of the legendary versatility of BCS two-wheel tractor for small farms and homesteads. We love ours here on Riverbend. It's the most efficient and time-saving choice for a small acreage. Building raised beds with a rotary plow attachment, mixing in soil amendments with the power harrow, and shredding cover crops in place with the flail mower. But a BCS two-wheel tractor is more than just a gardening tool. BCS powers more than 40 high-quality PTO-driven attachments, each with the power and performance of an all-gear drive transmission. Blow snow with the BCS's snow thrower. Chip and shred limbs and sticks with a chipper shredder. Clean up your property with a pressure washer. Haul up to 1,100 pounds, including yourself, with the ride-on utility tractor. And even spread compost over 30-inch beds with the spreader attachment. Yep. BCS is pretty much the Swiss army knife of power equipment for your homestead. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full range of tractors and attachments and find your nearest BCS dealer today. That's bcsamerica.com. All right, so this week we're going to be talking canning, and this is kind of the beginning of a series, right, Right. on some different kind of preservation 101. Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, you work so hard to either source really good food or to grow really good food but what are you going to do with that all you have to put it up and preserve it get it on your shelf and let me tell you this year this month feels like a great time to have a lot of food on your pantry shelf and so canning is just you know the natural know somehow it's a very natural place for a lot of us to start with food preservation so we're talking about that this week but we'll be talking about some other methods in the upcoming weeks. That's right. And you know, a stat that we're going to talk about in a little bit or that you'll probably talk about that I just learned today is that already about a third of the U.S. actually does some sort of canning. Now, I, I was really surprised how high that is. And, mm-hmm. and I know from what we're seeing in our dialogue with people in homesteading family, that interest is exploding right, right now. Um, rightfully so. And that's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. But I think a lot of those people maybe are doing a little bit of jams, a little bit of pickles, something, you know, kind of intro level. And they're looking to up their game in canning. So, yeah, that's kind of fun stuff. We want to move it into actually serious some, food. some prepping, canning. <laughs> You know, preserving your garden food mm-hmm. and even what you've really done well at 
is um, convenience camp. Oh, yeah. That is my favorite. Having mm -hmm. meals completely ready on the shelf or, you know, one step away from ready, like meal starters. But having some convenience food that I've canned that makes it, I know everything that's in it. There's none of the disgusting ingredients that are in store-bought convenience food. Plus, it's a lot cheaper. If you have looked at healthy convenience foods that you buy maybe in the freezer department of the grocery store, you are not feeding a large family on that regularly. Let me just say, those things are expensive. So this is a great way to get a lot of really good food on the shelf ready to eat. And I'll tell you what, I love it when you're gone. Yeah. yeah and I need a quick meal. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it makes that very, very easy. Yeah, really still is. getting to enjoy some of our home-cooked food instead of something out of the freezer aisle. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hey, uh, before we dive into that, mm -hmm. let's catch up a little bit and answer a question. So what is going on with you right now? Oh, okay. Around the homestead. Well, you know, we had a challenging week this last week. We had two freezes back-to-back. -back on top the of the... Power being out. On top of the power being out. And we kind of talked about that last week in the yep. last uh, podcast and video pantry chat episode. So we've done a little bit of harvest scrambling, right? Mm -hmm. Try to harvest the garden a little bit early, get all that food up. But then right on top of that, we also had our big chicken butchering day of the year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so on Saturday, we butchered 135, 135 birds, birds, mostly yeah. chickens, uh, 100 meat layers, a bunch of older egg layers, and uh, several ducks. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so we got hundreds and hundreds of pounds of meat into the freezer that day, which was amazing. Yeah, I five, think, over 550. Yeah, yeah. Probably by the time we factor in all the egg layers and everything, we might be pushing about 600. Which is is a lot. To a lot of you out yeah. there, but is not even quite a third of our annual household needs uh, for, for meat, for meals throughout right. the year. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We have so, a very large household. Good, good step towards it. And always guests coming in and out. So we yeah. need a lot of meat in the freezer. So, But you know what the really exciting thing about that to me was? Is that, you know, there was a time not too many years ago when 30 chickens would take us almost all day. Yeah. Like, it was a hard process. And now we were done with those 135-ish birds by about 2 p.m. Yeah, completely done. Completely. Other than clean up. Yeah. Clean up took a little bit longer. So what do you attribute that to? Well, I think there's a few things. One, though, I think the first one is just practice. We've gotten a lot better. Mm -hmm. And the kids have gotten better. The and older. Yeah. And older. Huge so help. they become more helpful. Of course, without the kids, we wouldn't have to butcher so many birds, but, you know, balances okay, out. balances out. Yeah. We've, we've also really invested in really good quality equipment. Let me just tell you, do not try to go into a big chicken butchering day without at least a plucker and a scalder. Yeah, of some sort. Of and, some if, sort. and if you're doing 25 to 30 birds, you can really kind of DIY that, yeah. you know, and that works. We did that for a lot of years, mm -hmm. figured it out and kind of begged, borrowed, taped together equipment, right. <laughs> whatever we needed to do to get it going. But now at our level where it's a uh, hundred birds is the absolute minimum we're doing every year. And like last year, if you haven't seen that video, we did 225 birds. Right. And so having some good quality equipment, uh, really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So on a totally different note, that is about as non-homesteading as we get here. 
great grandma Jeannie is now living with us. She is 92 next month. No, I don't Coming know that up. that's not. She's she's an original homesteader, even though she doesn't anymore. She, 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 is. she grew up on the homestead and through the Great Depression in Texas. Right. Well, she turned to me the other week and said, I want to get my hair permed. <laughs> <laughs> I have never had my hair permed in my life personally, so I don't really even know it's involved that much. But we went down to the hair salon, and she got her hair permed. Yeah. And you know what I said to myself? When I'm 92 years old, I'm getting my hair permed. <laughs> <laughs> she had a blast, and that is enjoying having her hair look nice without she having she to comb She looks good. Yep. She does. Yep. So anyways, that was fun, getting to spend some extra time with her. Yeah. Always fun. Very but what cool. about you? Wow. Well, you know, like you said, you kind of covered it. Uh, chicken butchering was the, the main topic this last mm-hmm. week. And that went really, really well. So nice to have that job down. Yep. And uh, with the early freeze, that kind of kicks the garden a little faster into some, I won't say winter garden preps yet. We're not quite ready for that. Yeah. But we're definitely cleaning out some of that stuff that died, getting that into the new compost pile we're starting that that, uh, we build over the course of the fall and spring Mm -hmm. and then finish off through the summer. And um, starting some preps, going to do some cover crop sowing here. That's coming up. And, um, yeah, working on that. And, of course, the addition is going. We're trying yes. to beat the rain and the weather on that. Yeah. And uh, that's that's happening. It's coming right along. It is. Just a lot happening still. And we've got a bit of an addition going on the barn to get yeah. us some roof space. Up here in North Idaho with the weather, um, you just can't have enough roof space. Yeah. Like, not enclosed indoor buildings. And we can use a lot of that, too, for right. our size. That's why we're doing an addition. But... Just roof space for all the equipment and fencing and the different activities that go on besides the barn. So we're adding some wings onto the barn, just uh, post and roof. Yeah. And that starts tomorrow. Okay. So. Just a um, lot happening around here. Yeah, it really is. But all good stuff and kind of moving into winter crops. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, next up is firewood. Yeah. Yeah. Firewood. The logs are all stacked and yep. it's time to just start bucking it up, splitting it. And, uh, Stacking it. Yeah, yeah. And winter is coming down the line, and so I'm starting to feel the pressure. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, that's keeping us busy. <laughs> oh, so let's move on to a Q&A for okay. the question of the week, which was from Raw Food Electric on Homesteading Family's uh, 2019 year in review. Wow, we're coming up on a 2020 wow, so year in review. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Some, somebody's going through the archives Absolutely. a little bit. Absolutely. Cool. They say, hi, Josh and Carolyn. Do you own a backup generator? If so, what kind and why? Well, that was a very applicable question this last week. (laughs) Sure was. Yes, we just went five days without power while it was down because of some windstorms. And yes, we have multiple backup generators and um, a variety of brands. I love the Hondas. They just are super, super dependable. Uh, We've got a Kohler for our pump house. And we actually have a generic one that serves the main house that actually came with the house when we bought it a couple years ago. And I can't even tell you what brand that is, but that's actually been a very good generator as well. And for us, with a large property and a lot of outbuildings and moving into this setup, we have multiple generators spread around. Um, I love the Hondas. So the ones that I buy have been Honda or Kohler generally, Mm -hmm. because those are just very, very dependable. And... um, really like those. And so they're just sized to use um, where we need them in the different places. Long-term goal, we want to go to an inline generator that will cover the whole house, turn on automatically. We had that before in in the house we built many years ago. 
And we'll go to that as we move to better strategies, you know, prepping strategies and even eventually off-grid. Right. Um, and I'd look at a uh, Kohler for that, Generac or Kohler, but a lot of people prefer the Kohlers. Now, uh, we did put an inline one in over at my parents' house mm-hmm. on yep. the property when that was built. And talking to my mom through this power outage, she was just kind of like, well, aside from the noise of the generator running out back, it hasn't changed anything about my life. Yeah. So it was very, very easy for her to just move yep. right on through a power outage. Right. So. Yeah. And and we did well, you know, having to have them not automated and in line. Right. You got to go start them. You got to go refuel them. And so there's a bit to keep up with there when you're out of power for multiple days, but totally keeps us going. And we could do that for a long time if we had to. So that's really a bare minimum. Um, if you're if you're thinking about prepping and, and just having, you know, we've talked about this a lot in other episodes, but um, you really want some backup generators to cover the basics. Yes, you can get by with lamps or lights or whatnot, but what about your freezers? Yeah. What about your refrigerators? Um, water heater, depending on how you're set up, and stove. And so you really, really want to have some good generators. You know, I think a lot of people are, a lot more people are starting to buy large quantities of meat, hopefully sure. directly from a farmer or rancher. That is just a, such a great thing to do. But I'd really say just don't get that freezer and get it packed with meat until you have a generator backup because... Oh. That is a huge loss financially, just all the way across the board. It is a yeah. huge loss. So it's worth saving up, getting the generator first, and then filling that thing with and meat. don't forget about them if your power does go out. I've heard so many stories of people, their power goes out, their freezers are off in a different space, oh, and yeah. they, they, they get a lot going on. It's kind of, you know, running yeah, around, a lot to deal with this scrambling, and they forget about the freezer. And like us, we lose our power for 24 hours sometimes. That's yeah. really not very inconvenient. But yeah. when it comes to four or five days, there's a lot more you have to start thinking about and work with. And I've seen people forget about their freezers. Oh. And that's horrible. Oh. That's absolutely horrible. You lose a whole freezer full of food. So make sure you've got that. If you are stocking up right now, in uh, particularly in this season where so many people are thinking about this, and you've bought an extra freezer or two and whatever you're doing to get meat into it, just remember that backup plan to make sure those are covered as part of your emergency plan if the power goes out or, you know, whatever. Now, right now, freezers are hard to get. Do we know or generate? We didn't try to buy a generator recently because we already have We one. did. I just went and bought one. You just got I one did and you were be- because we had it. a weak link in our system. Okay. And with the for water, the and because right. we have gravity feed, it's been fine for us when the water's been out for a day. We've mm-hmm. been, been able to deal with that. Not right. a problem because we have gravity feed. But when we were looking at realizing they were telling us indefinite, we didn't yeah. know if it was going to be four days, five, two weeks. I was like, okay, we got to get this powered up and the gravity flow for mom and dad's house wasn't working. So, yes, I went and bought a generator and was able to get one. No problem right here in town. They're somewhat available. right? Yeah, but don't wait, you guys. There's so many delays on so many things. And this is why, you know, some of the things we've been talking about recently Mm -hmm. in just getting prepped and thinking about the future with all the uncertainty, you know, you're going to have to wait for things right now. We're hearing that and seeing that ourselves. So. Mm If you don't have a generator backup system, go out and start working on it now because it may take you a little while to get what you need or what you want. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. All right, well, we better start getting into our main topic today. Yeah, so. Which is canning. So today we're going to be doing an introduction, which is kind of a quick overview here in the time that we have available for this episode. But if you want step-by-step directions through a canning project with complete safety information, you can go to homesteadingfamily.com slash canning and sign up there. There's a free four-video course where you actually can a meal. 
and get a meal. On right. Show. You obviously can't take everybody step by right. step through yeah. here <laughs> in, in this, this uh, you know, kind of format, podcast yeah. talk show format. So yeah. um, that's a great, great resource. Yeah. But hey, let's dive in. Okay. And we were going to start with a little bit of quick canning history. Yeah. And this some of this stuff I haven't even heard. So what do you got for us? Yeah. You know, it's surprising when you hear that the history of canning starts with Napoleon. Right. Yeah. Very like, fascinating. You don't, you don't expect that to happen. The reality is a lot of food preservation over history does not travel well. A lot of the forms of food, you know, preservation, maybe dehydrating is a good way to um, move food around. But besides that, you're fermenting, your root cellar stuff, you can't move it very easily. So Napoleon was realizing that this was a massive a weakness in his battle strategy and his war strategy. <laughs> and so he actually put out a prize, put out a call. It was a contest for who could develop a type of food preservation that would allow him to move food with his troops or to his troops wow. during battle. And so in the early 1800s, a French man developed what we now know as kind of the uh, uh, early version of what we do as modern canning right okay. now. But back then, we didn't have standardized glass production. There were a lot of things that we did not have that made it uh, not something we could do for home preservation use. Okay. So it wasn't until Mr. Mason, John Mason in the 1850s, came up with the standardized glass jar with the screw top the lids. Mason jar, the Mason right? jar that we actually started this kind of wave of home preservation canning, home canning. And then that was taken even a step further when, I think that was, where did my notes say? 1950. 1950, Alexander Kerr developed the two-part lid, which is a little safer even for canning. We can talk about that maybe in a minute. standard today. That is now the standard. At least in the U.S. For the U.S., that is the standard. So I think something that's really important to note here is that, one, Unlike a lot of types of food preservation, canning is not actually natural. It is right. a scientific industrial model of food preservation. Right. And that's okay? a good point to bring this out. It's really an industrial important. model it that we industrial. have adopted into the home. Right. It's not like dehydrating that just happens if the food is left on the tree or, you know, or, uh, or fermenting mm-hmm. or, you know, some of those things. Um, and this is really important to bring out because you have to work with a different set of safety rules when you move into an industrial model, mm-hmm. right? There are a lot of things you can be kind of flippant about. Dehydrating, you know, the safety is not nearly as important. Canning does not fall into that. You really have to be careful with the safety. Yeah. So the other takeaway from the history of canning here is that canning is pretty new. In our history, it's not like some of our ancient preservation methods. Right. And so we're actually still learning a lot about canning. It's really dependent on understanding the microbiology. So we come back again to this safety issue. Which is why it's changed so much, right? You it hear has. a lot of people talking about what grandmother did or great-grandmother right. did. So I'll just do it that way. Right. We know a lot more, which you're going to cover here in a little bit. but. Yeah. Uh, it, it is new. It is and new. We're still learning. Yeah. So, you know, I, did, I don't want to say common sense doesn't apply here, but in some ways you can't just trust your intuition on canning. You really need to go with the rules. Right. Because we're stepping outside of the natural environment. So 
Cool. Anyways, important to know. So kind of kind of basic here, but I think you've got a few more things you, you want to cover. So what is canning? Just to give okay. a, a basic definition for everybody here. What do we mean when we say when we're talking about canning? Food. Okay. So canning is taking a food, putting it inside a jar, closing the lid on that jar, processing that jar that's filled in heat to thereby sterilize or pasteurize everything in that jar. And then in that process, the lid is vacuum sealed on and it becomes shelf stable. So you have a pasteurized vacuum sealed product when you're done, which means you can put it on your shelf and it can sit there for a decent amount of time, long amount of time, depending right. on what it is. Yeah, very, very okay? long. So kind of humorous historical question here for okay. you. So if it started with, you know, if it was really mainstreamed by Mason and Kerr, of course, we see all the jars. Mm -hmm. Why is it not called jarring? It is in some places of the world. <laughs> you know, I think as Americans, we just need to make things a little bit confusing. <laughs> I have no good answer to that. It, it should be joke. We've actually had people joke about that in dialogue, and, right. you know, on Facebook. <laughs> and, and I wonder if it's because we went to the industrial canning, actual can, right. metal cans, and was it ever called jarring? I don't know. It's a fun, it's it, a side it, discussion. It is, well, in a lot of places, it's called bottling. Bottling. In the rest of the world. It, it, so. it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. You know. It does make a lot more sense. They're in bottles or jars. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, so moving on. Anyways, um, so starting to dive into some of the topics here and the things that people need to know. Okay. Number one that I know is very big for you and in your, your teaching and sharing with people that you just really need to get down before you dive into all the other mm -hmm. different details of canning is canning safety. Right. Yeah. Canning safety is so important. Just kind of why we were just talking about that. But... You know, the thing that I hear over and over again are two main fears, and I identify with them because I've had both of them throughout my journey as, you know, learning to can. The first one is I'm afraid I'm going to kill somebody or make somebody sick, right? The second one is... I'm still here. You're still here. <laughs> the, <laughs> it's very lucky. <laughs> I was the guinea pig, you know. <laughs> the second one is I'm afraid I'm going to blow something up. Right now, right at the beginning, I'm going to say canning safety is very, very important, but it's also incredibly, incredibly rare to make somebody sick or kill somebody by doing something wrong with canning. Today. Today. I just went over literally the last 20 years of botulism history in the United States, and less than three people die a year of foodborne botulism, all types of foodborne botulism, and only a tiny percentage of people sickened by it is from home canned wow. food. And that's CDC it, stats, right? That, yeah, these are that the CDC, the CDC stats. Yeah. Um, if you want to avoid foodborne botulism, don't eat nacho cheese at the convenience store. Yeah, don't drink anyways. Illicit, illicit alcohol in prison. And don't have <laughs> seal fermented seal blubber. Well, stay out of prison and you won't have a problem with that middle one. Right. You should avoid that one. Those are, that, those are the things that right. most people are dying from, a, quite seriously. botulism. For foodborne botulism, okay. there are very, very few cases of people actually dying from home canned food. And you know this is going to lead into the next topic. It's very avoidable. It's incredibly avoidable. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the second thing is blowing up the pressure canner. You know... Seems like it's happened, though. It, it has happened to happened. a lot of people. We hear a lot of stories it has happened. of grandmother and great grandmother. And uh, here's the key: 
it's grandmother and great grandmother, or it's somebody using great grandmother's pressure canner. Right. The modern pressure canners don't blow up anymore. Almost ever, you can mess it up, but usually you have to take a hammer to it to do it. Like you have to intentionally mess it up to make it. it. You have to modify it. Yeah. So here, here's how I know this from experience. I know this from study, but from experience, you know how many times I have personally overpressurized my pressure canner now? It's kind of embarrassing. I'm a slow learner. I've done it four times, and last week was the fourth time. I had a really, I didn't even hear about that. Uh, I had this really <laughs> nice lady helping me in my kitchen, and I put some green beans into the canner, and I walked out of the room because I am the queen of thinking I can do everything all at the same time and multitask, right? I walked out You're of the sure room. You're good at it. You know, 10 kids later, I just forget that I'm canning in the kitchen, and she's in there trying to wipe something down, and all of a sudden, I hear from the other room this crazy sound. I'm like, oh, no. The pressure canner had overpressured while her head was right by it. And you know what happens when the pressure canners overpressure now? You you wish it would be dramatic almost because you feel like it should be. The little weight just kind of goes bloop. Boring. It. it just steams like mad. And that was what I was hearing. It scared her pretty good. <laughs> the steaming <laughs> did. But it doesn't actually blow up anymore if you're using a modern pressure canner. So that's so, actually just come pretty much off the table as is, a risk. Yes. You can just put your fears away yes. on that one. Use as a long as you have canner. a modern canner. Right, right? exactly. And you yeah. like the All-American. I love the All-American. Because you'll be able to pass that down to your great-grandkids. I will. They're and built so well. And should, they won't have to worry yeah, about it. Yeah, it will still not blow up even <laughs> for them. <laughs> so I really like that. But it's good to know. Some of these things that we're afraid of and that stop us from getting started canning are actually not that big of a deal. And they're very avoidable. Either they're not a problem or they're something you can completely avoid. But on the botulism, you do need to follow what you're going to talk about yes. here in a little bit. The the, the safety rules, the safety right. guidelines. That yeah. is really important. It is. You were just not can't just do what great grandmother used to do right. and be safe. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's dive in then to the types of canning. Right, because when asked why people were still dying of botulism, the USDA replied that it's because they weren't educated or they ignored the type of canning that needed to be done in order to keep things safe. Okay, okay so this is really, really important, and this is kind of like safety, number one, using the right type of canning for the right type of food. So we're going to talk about using the right tool for the job. Exactly. That's it. And that is going to right there add a whole level of safety right to your canning. Mm -hmm. um, and a really important one. So we're going to talk about a couple of different types, actually several different types of canning. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I think uh, you want to dive into water bath canning, which yeah. is kind of the easiest to get started with. Right. It's safest. the easiest. It's the safest. And it uses the least amount of expensive equipment. You can water bath can in just a pot with a lid. So no special equipment. You don't need a special canner for it. it, it can, a canner is convenient because a rack can fit into there. Mm -hmm. And you do need to keep the jars off the bottom of your canner. But you can use a dish towel, believe okay. it or not. So you can just use your good old stock pot if that's what you have and you want to get started. Okay. Water bath canning is only safe for high acid foods. So that's foods that are 
lower on the acid scale. This gets a little confusing because it's lower on the pH scale, but it's higher acid than 4.6. And I just, just interject real quick. Mm -hmm. I believe you cover that in more detail where you have time in the four video I series, do. right? Yeah. I really so you, you can get more details on this. Thing. Right. Yeah. So the things that are high acid foods would be things like fruits, uh, pickles, tomatoes with a little acid added to them, jams and jelly. So you can actually get a lot of food put on your shelf just by water bath canning. And that is where you are putting those jars into that pot, bringing that, covering them with at least one to two inches of water over the top, bringing them to a boil um, all the way up to that 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees mm -hmm. Celsius, and keeping them at that boil for a specified amount of time. So the important cool. thing here with all of it is use an approved recipe. Okay? Very cool. That's really good. Question for you, though, uh -huh. because that's not an extensive list on the okay. water bath canning. But right. on the pickles, most of us, most people think of pickles, they think of cucumbers. Right. So can you, to expand that list of what you can do with water mm -hmm. bath canning, can you pickle, I know you pickle, mm -hmm. a lot of different vegetables. So Absolutely. can you pickle your carrots? Uh, your green beans, whatever, corn, and and then water bath can them if yes, you're you wanting to do as much as you can with water bath canning without getting into pressure canning yet. Yes. So that's can. cool. That's an expansion of, of, you know, what's doable. There. Yeah. And for a long time, that's why in our history, there's so many pickles is because it was a very doable thing for people at home okay. without the pressure canner. So you can pickle all sorts of things. But again, you need to use an approved recipe because you have to make sure that for whatever the food you're pickling, the acid you're using, usually vinegar for pickling, mm -hmm. brings that down into that safe pH zone. So just make sure you're using a safety-approved recipe or a recipe from somebody who's following the latest uh, recommendations for safety. Right. Be okay. careful what you follow on YouTube. Please. There are a lot Please. of people that, you know, are giving you a lot of advice that isn't safe. accurate. Right. Safe. <laughs> yeah. Okay, moving on. Um, so let's dive into pressure canning. That's the next main uh, approved way of canning. Right. So here's the thing. You can kill off yeasts and mold at boiling water temperatures. That water bath canning. Okay, so that's yep. that water bath canning, yeah. Um, but bacteria is not uh, reliably killed off. Now, bacteria can't live in high acid environments. Mm -hmm. So those high acid foods are fine. All we have to do is kill off the mold and the yeast. We don't need to worry about bacteria in that right. high acid food. But when you move towards a lower acid food like your vegetables, your meats, most of your sauces, your soups, things mm -hmm. like that, you need to realize that bacteria can grow in that low acid environment. Okay. Most bacteria or the most important bacteria like the botulism spores is not killed off at boiling water temperatures. We need to get it hotter. The only way to do that in a home environment is to add pressure. That's why you need a pressure canner, because you're actually bringing that canner up to 240 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit on the inside and holding it for a specified amount of time. That's about 116 degrees Celsius. And just to clarify that, that's the pressure canner. That's what it does. So people understand. Yes. Retain, excuse me. Retaining the pressure right. is what helps capture that heat and increase yeah. the heat. Otherwise, you can just basically boil it. And you lose You're just all evaporating the heat, the the heat right off. So yeah. just kind of getting the mechanics a little exactly. bit so people understand that. That exactly. pressure, it's not really the pressure. It's the pressure that retains the heat by right. capturing everything. 
and allows you to get to those temperatures. Right. And, you know, this is really important. You have to know how much pressure you're canning at according to your elevation. Mm-hmm. That has to do with the temperature that water boils at. It's really important to make sure you're canning at the specified pressure. Now, that's really easy on a home pressure canner. But this is where people ask me all the time, can I use my Instapot for uh-huh. pressure canning? <laughs> you, There is no way to test your Instapot to see what pressure it's actually at. So, you know, I'm a rule breaker in a lot of ways. I, I bend rules. I break rules. This is one I would never, never break for my family. It is not safe. You have no idea if you are canning or if you're pressurizing that Instapot to 10 pounds of pressure, 15 pounds of pressure. And just because... A, a electric pressure cooker has a dial on it or a, you know something that says this is what it's at. There's no way to test that. Yeah. So it's really important to know that you're actually canning at the pressure you need to can at to safely kill off the bacteria. So scratch the Instapot. Take Please. it off your list of options. Yeah. It's a great tool for pressure cooking yes. your foods and your wild turkey or, or whatever <laughs> it is you want to make yeah uh it, it's got a great purpose but yeah. it is not for canning so many people we get so many requests on that yeah so many people want to know can we use the instapot right yeah no 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 and no and there are versions out there right now that say that they're safe for canning just know that at this point as of last week when i checked the there is absolutely no method that is approved by the National Center for Home Food Preservation. No electric canning, pressure canning, anything out there that is actually approved. They don't exist. Oh, None well, of them say have been, that. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so just know that. Okay. You need to be able to know what pressure you're at. So, real quick before we move on, what do you recommend then for a canner? Okay. What, what is the preferred I pressure, highly, pressure canner? We already talked about it for a second. I highly recommend the All-American canners. They will last for a really long time. They're really good quality, and they're very, very safe. I really like them. Plus, you don't have to replace parts year after year. They have a metal-to-metal seal, so you don't have to replace the rubber gaskets. I really like that. But another thing that I really like about them is the they use a weighted gauge, which means you don't have to get your dial gauge tested. If you're using any form of a dial gauge pressure canner, please get it tested before you can on it. I've seen them very wrong right out of the box. And you need to get them tested every year to make sure that that dial is correct. But if you use the weighted gauge, you never have to get it tested. So let me ask you, because we get this question all the time. What what about the, I think it's the Presto. The Presto. That's a question we get a lot. And, you know, and I I think it's a decent canner, but... But can you tell us a little bit about that one and why you'd buy it and why you wouldn't? Yeah. Because it's... it's... I started with a Presto um, because they're a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. And you can usually find them on your box store shelves, you know. So they're easier to find. They're a lot easier to find. And, um, you know, they're a a decent machine. They're going to get you started. They're not going to last forever like the All-Americans are. And they are generally a dial gauge. So you have to get them tested. You have to go to your county extension office. And you have to take the whole lid of your can- canner in and leave it with them and pay some money. Sometimes it's $2, sometimes it's 20 depending on your office. Okay. And get it actually tested so you know that your gauge is working properly. Um, but for most of them, you can actually get a little aftermarket kit. I don't know if they call it aftermarket kits <laughs> for canners. But 
to turn it into a weighted gauge instead. Which so I you take it you'd it. highly recommend. I would highly recommend yeah. that. Just don't mess with the dial gauges. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We've got better options. So the Presto can work for you. Um, it okay. just isn't as great a machine. Yeah. All right. So one other method of canning, and sure. I didn't really even realize this was a viable method, and it is for some things, but not for others. Okay. And you'll explain that to us. Talk to us about oven canning. I know, and we okay. get a lot of questions. Okay. You know, people want to can things in the oven. Okay. So there are two different types of oven canning, and this is where I think people get into trouble, is they don't realize that they may not be talking about the same thing as somebody else. Okay. One type of oven canning is where you're taking dry, shelf-stable things. Let's say flour. Okay. Dried beans. Something that is shelf-stable as it is in its packaging. You're putting it into jars. You're putting it into the oven. And then you're capping it down and it's creating a seal. So you're essentially just sealing it. You're, is what all you're, you're doing, doing is vacuum sealing it. That's and, really and all you're doing. the benefit of that, why, why do people do that? That you don't have a vacuum sealer. I don't know. I personally, I would not do that. I'd just go get a vacuum sealer with a jar attachment and do it that way. Jars are known to break in the oven for that dry heat. Um, you know, if you didn't have a vacuum sealer and you just wanted to do a few jars, that'd probably be fine. Just make sure you don't have any nicks or chips in your jars already that would make them weak. Okay. Now, here is the thing that people do that is highly, highly dangerous. And it's that they take their, I don't know, beef broth. I've heard of people doing this with chicken broth and beef broth. They put it into jars. They slide it into a tray in the oven. And they turn that oven to, you know, 240 degrees because they think, well, that's what the pressure canner goes to. Mm -hmm. And they leave it in there for a specified amount of time, bring it out and cap it down and then get a seal that way. This is not safe. Okay, why? This is not remotely safe. And that is because dry heat and wet heat are very, very different things. Okay? okay. You can sterilize a jar if you need to or any sort of thing by putting it in boiling water for 12 minutes. You, It will not be sterilized if you put it in the oven for 12 minutes. Even at a higher 250, right. 300 degrees? Yes. Yeah. The temperature you'd have to take it to to make it safe for that would most likely break your jars. Wow. Okay. okay, so this is not safe. Please don't do it. Just because somebody's done it for generations and nobody's gotten sick does not mean you want to be the person that gets sick. Because people have gotten people sick. People have gotten and sick. Do gotten and they sick. will we, get we're, sick. We're forgetting those stories because yes. of our modern technology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So anything that does not use an actual pot of water is not safe. Your dishwasher is not safe to can. And I've heard so many amazing different <laughs> things that people can. And really? you, yeah, I just don't can in something else. It's not safe. Don't do it. Let's just make that the bottom line. Okay. <laughs> Come back to get the right tools for the job. Yeah. And, and the job is just so much easier, so much more dependable. And really, you're going to be way, way more efficient. Anyways. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, we better move through here. We're getting close to getting done. But you had some thoughts on just the practicality of approaching canning right. and making it work for you and for your household and your family. When you start canning, if you're a beginner canner, the temptation is to try to reproduce the grocery store. You know, kind of make it so that you can sure. eat whatever you want year round. Working with what you know. Yeah, that's, that's kind of with. your experience so that you can just like Go to the grocery store in your own pantry. And it's a nice idea, but we've got to be real. Canning is a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Okay. You know, there are things that make a lot of sense to can. 
canning your convenience foods makes a lot of sense because it's going to save you a lot of time somewhere else, right? When you need it, it's going to save you money somewhere else. Canning something that you could just live without for the season doesn't maybe make so much sense. So I would really, really recommend taking a look at your diet and starting to eat more seasonally and leaving the canning for things that are really special to you. You know, opening that strawberry jam in the middle of winter is a special moment. Like do that. Mm. Make sure you have those things. Opening the honey spiced peaches when it's February and there's snow on the ground and having them as a side dish for breakfast is amazing. And I totally recommend doing some of that. But let's make sure that we are making the best use of our time and energy mm-hmm. and not just canning everything because we can get our hands on it. So that that would be my practical advice. Um, for years, we've canned between 800 and 1,200 jars of food in our household. This year, I'm happy to say we've actually reduced that number because we're getting better at other preservation methods. Mm-hmm. And, and growing uh, seasonally appropriate crops, like for us, right. root crops that we can store without all that energy yeah. use, both ours and the, the power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's good as a tool, but let's not make it something that you just have to go to. But talk about what are what are some other things you do like to can, though, because mm-hmm. you often tell people don't just can fruits and jams. What right. are some of the go-tos? Right. What are some of the things we want to get on the shelf? Yeah. So it's really important that when you're spending all this energy and time canning something, that it's actually going to be part of a meal later on, right? Right, not just a condiment. Right, replace something that you would buy at the grocery store because it's really easy. You get their canning books and you flip them open and they have all these great looking flavored mustards and fancy jams and all these Mm -hmm. things that sound like a lot of fun. But then when you get them on your shelf, you realize I can't actually just go grab that and dump it on a plate and eat it for lunch. Like that's a condiment. Maybe I don't even know what to do with it really well. So make sure that you are actually canning things that are going to fill a slot on your grocery bill. And that becomes much more practical. So for us, we like those fresh fruit jams. There's no way that we could afford the jam that we could eat during the winter if we weren't growing it on the trees and then putting it up. Mm -hmm. Jam's just expensive if it's high quality and low sugar, which is what we like. So I put a lot of those up. Put up a little bit of special fruits for winter eating Mm -hmm. for, you know, on the weekends. We like to have a brunch. But really the things like the vegetables that can be a side dish, the meats that can be a great meal starter, and then the complete convenience meals, I think, are where it's at when it comes to canning and cool. having them worth their time. Now, I notice you do a lot of broths too. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do a lot of broths. That is because when you're making broth at home, it's essentially free, right? Mm-hmm. And it's actually really, really easy to can in a pressure canner. And um, if you go buy organic broth at the store, like a little box of that is expensive. expensive. And instead I can make it for free and can it really quickly, really easily at home. So I make sure I keep a lot of those on hand. Just, you know, when we have a roast chicken, I just cook it down the next day into a broth and then can it up. And of course, that's very nutrient dense. So you can take that and then add it to rice and noodles and a few veggies or whatever you've got. And even if you're low on meat, there's a lot of nutrient preservation there. Absolutely. It's a really good way to make use of something that you might just be scraps in your kitchen. Cool. Well, this has been a great uh, introduction to canning, right? kind of that canning one-on-one. Anything else as we're getting ready to wrap up here you want to share? Yeah, just remember that canning when it's done safely is a really great way to get food on your shelf. 
It's not that hard. It's not dangerous as long as you follow basic instructions. And if you want the step-by-step directions, um, we have that free four-part video series where you actually get a meal on your shelf. You probably don't need any other equipment than what's in your kitchen already. Right. It's a water bath it's canning. A water so, bath so canning. So it's real easy to dive into, get Absolutely. going with. Yeah, yeah, it's very safe. And I go through all the safety instructions. So again, you can find that at homesteadingfamily.com slash canning. That's right. And we'll leave you the link in the description. Yeah. And hey, it's been great hanging out with you guys this week. And we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pantry Chat Food for Thought. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. To view the show notes and any other resources mentioned on this episode, you can learn more at homesteadingfamily.com slash podcast. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.